Amen, amen. It is so good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, uh, happy Resurrection Sunday. And you know, the, the thing about Christianity is this. Christianity is the only religion in the world that begins in a virgin womb and ends with an empty tomb. You know, it's the only, it's the only religion in the world where it's God pursuing man instead of man pursuing God. And uh, one of my favorite things about Easter uh, is looking around at all the men that are dressed like their wives because they made them. So just go ahead and just look at your neighbor, and if they're one of them, say, he's talking about you. But I will warn you, if, uh, if, 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 I catch this happening a little too much, what I will do is I will, from the pulpit, pull your man card, okay? All of you newlyweds, you get a free pass, and uh, you get grace there, so I'm going to let you slide. Some of you older men, I'm going to let you slide because you found the secret of what it means to be able to get along with your wife. And uh, for some of you guys that are still trying to be manly, then it'll just get pulled because you're in a place where you don't even know what you're doing. But... uh, Either way, I'm just joking. Glad to, glad to see you. I will say one thing before we start. Make sure that you keep uh, Brother Rick Clendenin in your prayers. Um, he's had some heart-related issues, and he's in the hospital in, in Nashville right now. Uh, they are planning on Tuesday to uh, be able to do open-heart surgery on him. Um, they're having to take him off blood thinners, and uh, his body's working with it, but uh, still, it's a big thing just for him to come off of the blood thinners. So, But the good news is, the doctor says, if they're able to do the surgery, which is what we're believing to happen, if the doctors are able to do the surgery, uh, it could restore his heart function back to uh, perfectly normal. So we want to believe God for that result, not, not 75%. Or even 95%, we want to believe God for 100% restoration of his health. Amen. If you've got a Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and turn over to the book of, of Luke. Luke chapter number 23. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. We've been doing a series of... Uh, Uh, on famous last words. And what we've done is we've been taking some of the scriptures that are literally the the very last words of Jesus. We we, we talked about how the last words are important and how that there could be no more significant, meaningful last words than the words of our Savior on the cross. And so we've talked about a couple of things in the Gospels concerning the last statements. Jesus uttered seven statements from the cross, which were his last words before his death on the cross. And we talked about the significant meaning of what that is and how it applies to our life and why it's important. And today we're going to talk about one particular verse in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. But before we do, let's read verse number 44. If you're there, say amen. It says, now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, 
he says these words. These are the very last of the last words that Jesus will speak before his death on the cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. We're going to look at verse 46. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for Jesus. We know that without Jesus that there would be no hope of eternal life, that we would still be dead in our trespasses and sin. Lord, reveal to us, Lord, the the truth of the gospel, for the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have a living faith. We have a risen Savior. We have an eternal God that is and was and is to come. Lord, we know that you suffered and you died. We know that you were buried into, in a borrowed tomb. We know that on the third day that you rose from the dead. We know that you ascended into heaven. But Lord, even now we know that you are coming back again. So Lord, I pray that you take our time together. Give us revelation in our heart concerning this verse as we discuss this statement and what it means and the significance of it and how we can apply it to our life. Because, Lord, a Christian faith is a faith that is constantly transforming our lives to become more like Jesus. I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that, Lord, that you would speak to them, that you would draw them to yourself. I pray for those that are here that are stuck, that are in a rut, Lord, that, that are, uh, are in a place that, that, that they never intended to be, but, but, Lord, they don't know how to get out of it. I pray today that you just bring them out of where they are. I pray for those that, that are, are excited and on fire for you, that you would just fan the flames in their heart into a, a burning, raging fire. Lord, help make our love for you fierce and so that we can live for you in these days. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Famous last words. In the African culture, the national Christians pray that when they die, that they die a good death. Now, uh, many of us may have our own idea what it means to, to, to die a good death, but in African culture, dying a good death doesn't mean that you die without pain. Dying a good death doesn't mean that, that you die with dignity. Dying a good death doesn't mean that you, that you die at an old age. To have a good death or to die a good death in the African culture actually means that you have an opportunity to gather all of your family around you one last time and that you also have the strength to be able to give them one final charge concerning Living for Jesus, concerning keeping the faith, concerning living a God-honoring life, and, and finally, that they are prepared that when they pass from this life to the next one, that they are prepared to be reunited together again with you in heaven. And this is how a dying faith is passed on to a living faith. And so it's a good death is what the African culture, that's, that's what they teach. And this way, the faith of the dying is actually passed on to the living. And so saying that, it, it makes me want to ask you a question. That when it comes to your, t- your time, 
When you pass before and you pass from death unto life, when you leave this world and and you enter into eternity, I wonder just before that, what would be your final words? That's important for us to consider. It's important that we leave a good legacy behind to our family. It's important that we live a good life before our family. But it's equally important that when we die, that we have died a good death for our family. You know, so if you consider, what would your last words be? You know, what would you be able to leave behind? What kind of legacy would, would, would you have? And so uh, during my time in ministry, I preached a lot of funerals. And uh, I don't enjoy doing them. I, I've preached some very difficult ones. And, but the most difficult are the ones that you preach where you do not know the, the eternal state of the person that you're speaking about. When you're unsure of where that person is in light of eternity. Or even worse than that, when you do know that they had rejected Christ in their lifetime. My father, my, my own dad died, and I have to assume this because I, I, I don't know of any time that I can remember that he ever received Christ while he was alive. That's probably the thing that, that haunts me more than anything because I was the person that when he had come to the end of his life where he was laying in a hospital and he had no brain activity, but yet uh, because he didn't have a, a wheel or anything to... Uh, deal with what kind of instructions needed to be pursued in order to take care of him if he were to be hooked up to a, a life support system. Me and my sister was the one that had to actually go in and sign the papers so they could disconnect him off of life support. And I thought about that so much and wondered, you know, wonder where my dad is right now. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing to consider. Death is never easy for any family, but I can promise you this much. When the family knows where you are in terms of where your soul is, it makes a big difference. It is critically important that you leave a legacy of a good life, but it is equally important that you leave a legacy of a good death. And so we look at Jesus, and when we look at Jesus, we know that he just didn't leave a legacy of a good life. He left a legacy of a good death. No, it wasn't pain-free. He went through a lot of suffering. The cross was torturous. When they whipped him with the cat of nine tails, it was excruciating in pain. Oftentimes, people would die just from the initial beating with the cat of nine tails. He went through tremendous pain. He went through tremendous suffering. And here he was on the cross with hands driven or nails driven through his hands and feet, piercing the nerve centers, pulsating pain throughout his entire body, slumped over, struggling to breathe, on the verge of suffocating to death because of a lack of oxygen and when you look at him on the cross just in that light only it looks as if he has done nothing but died a humiliating death in all pain suffering and torment but that's not the way that Jesus died at all and when you look at this when you look at how Jesus died when you examine what we just got through reading in verse number 46, when you look at how Jesus died, it will change what you think about death 
for the rest of your life. It's important to notice how that he died. You know, he went before us, showed us the way. This is where African culture gets the, 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 the mindset of, of how that they are to die a good death. Jesus went before us. And Jesus showed us the way of how we could get to heaven. And not only that, he invites you and I to join him in heaven throughout eternity. That's not just living a good life, that is living a good death. Now, Jesus just didn't die any certain way. Jesus didn't die the way that he had to. Jesus actually died the way that he wanted to. If that were not true, then he would have never been able to say what he said in verse number 46. Jesus didn't die the way he had to. He died the way he wanted to. That's why he could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It wasn't something that he was a victim of a crime. It wasn't something that he was, you know, at, at, the, at the chance or, the, or, or at the fate of the timetable of an accident or, or that he was in the hands of sinful men, that that was the result of it. Yes, that God used all of those factors in his death to bring about redemption. But the truth is, he died the way that he wanted to die. He died voluntarily. He died at, at, as a result of a choice of his own will. So let's look at this for a moment. Exactly how did Jesus die? Let's look at this is in your outline, but go ahead and put up this first slide. How did Jesus die? Jesus died, number one, in the presence of his Father. Now I love this. Because in Luke chapter 23, we find the very last words that Jesus would ever speak while he was alive on the cross just before his death. And his last words, when he speaks, he speaks with such confidence and assurance because when you have lived a good life and you are dying a good death, you can have confidence and assurance that when you and I meet God, there's not going to be anything you have to worry about. Jesus did not die worrying whether he finished the assignment that God gave him. Jesus did not die wondering whether he did enough to finish the race that he would ran. Jesus did not die with regret. Jesus did not die with remorse. Jesus did not die as a victim. Jesus did not die as somebody that, that experienced some kind of a tragedy. Jesus died with confidence and assurance that when he appears before his father, he's going to have said, I have finished my assignment and now I'm home. That's dying a good death. We've learned up to this point that for the first three hours that Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus suffered by the hands of man. We also learned for the next three hours that Jesus suffered by the hands of God the Father himself. And now at this time, just before he breathes his last breath, he entrusts his spirit into the hands of his Father. Jesus was just as committed to suffering in the presence of God as he was to rejoicing 
in the presence of God. And the hands that brought terrible pain and suffering would very soon bring relief and comfort when he is welcomed back home. So he died in his father's presence. He died not how he had to. He died the way that he wanted to. It was a voluntary act. Nobody forced him to do this. He had a choice, but he chose to suffer. We talked about that a little bit next week, uh, last week. And so I want to encourage you with this. If you want to leave or die a good death, you should live your life in such a way that the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. Oh, you read the obituaries in the newspaper time and time and ten, and you, you know, such and such was a member of this church, and, and yada, 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 and you know they hadn't been in church for 50 years. Or you've seen people inside the church act one way and then outside of the church act another way. And, and they just feel like that, you know, because they belong to a church or their name is written down in a, in a church membership book or they've been water baptized or they've given money to a local church that, you know what, that you know, surely they are in heaven. None of those things save you. But if you're going to die a good death, then you should live, leave a legacy of a good life. There should be no doubt when you pass from this life to the next one where your family knows where you're at. And not only should your family know where you're at, your family should know how to get there themselves because you've told them. That's important. That's dying a good death. Jesus died in the presence of his father. Now, here's the second thing. Jesus died within his father's providence. Now, that's a big word, but simply all that means is Jesus died as a result of the orchestrated plan that God had foreordained for him. In other words, he knew what he had to do, he wasn't taken by surprise. He knew that this was all a part of God's plan, but knowing that this is a part of God's plan does not mean that it's easy. Doesn't mean that it's going to be painless. Doesn't mean that you're not going to have to go through some difficulty, some suffering, some tragedy, but make no mistake about it, listen, tragedy within itself can still also be a part of the plan of God. God, the Bible says, redeems all things. You know what the word all means in the Greek? It means all. It means everything. So if you've been through a lot, if you're a Christian, you've been through a lot, you've suffered a lot, you, you've got a lot of questions, and, and, and you've got a lot of pain, you've got a lot of anger, you've got a lot of, uh, of, of just being deep wounds on the inside of you, i got good news for you. God redeems all things. He never wastes pain. You know, the Bible says it's by the Lord's stripes that we're healed. In the very areas that he was wounded, he got authority to heal. See, the devil thought when, when he was, was chastising him, when he was persecuting him, when he was whipping him, when he was nailing, uh, putting nails through his hands and feet, that he was actually killing Jesus. But actually what he was doing was he was redeeming us. Because God works all things together. 
for the good of those that love the Lord, those that are called according to his purpose. So he died within his father's providence. Now listen to this. This is another reason why I love the Bible. When you dig deep enough, it's really and truly an amazing thing. Now in Exodus chapter 12, there's a statement that's made the moment that the Passover lamb was to be killed. And in Exodus 12 verse 6, the literal statement for the moment when this Passover lamb was to be killed was between the evenings. Now, we talked about this last week. In, in, in Jewish culture, when, when, we, when we were able to, to consider the, the time frame in which Jesus was, was crucified, we know that in Jewish, in Jewish culture, a new day began at 6 a.m., right? So we also know that at 9 a.m., Jesus was crucified, but he had not died yet, okay? But the Passover lamb was killed between the evenings, Jesus was crucified on the exact day that the Passover lambs were being killed, right at 3 p.m. Now, Matthew doesn't record the last words of Jesus, but it simply says here in verse number, chapter 27, verse 50, it says that when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. His spirit was under his own control until the moment that he dismissed it, placing it in the hands of God. Isn't that what he did? Isn't that what he said? He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. God didn't do that for him. He is God. He voluntarily laid down his life, and when he says, it is finished, It means there was nothing left undone. And after everything had been accomplished by his own volition, by his own decision, by his own control, because listen, you know what? Even on the cross, Jesus was king. Even on the cross, Jesus was king. And even on the cross, Jesus was in control. It's called divine providence. He's the God-man. And as a matter of fact... Because Jesus is God, he was able to dismiss, give up, commit his spirit into the hands of his Father because he's king and he's sovereign and he is in control. Now, the truth is, in reality, the reason Jesus could do this is because Jesus never really died. He does not say on the cross, I am dying. You'll not find it in the Bible. Because Jesus didn't die, Jesus finished. When he was on the cross, he didn't say, I am dying. He said, it is finished. And I want you to know something. Dying is not the same as finishing. Dying is not the same as finishing. So as king, Jesus was always in control. Now listen to this. Jesus was in control when Judas betrayed him. Jesus was in control when the soldiers came to arrest him. Jesus was even in control when he stood before Pilate in John chapter 19 when Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you or let you go? And Jesus said, No, no, no. Let me set the record straight, bro. He probably didn't say it like that. But he had to correct Pilate and say, listen, let me tell you something. 
you would have no power over me, lest it be given to you from above. The only power Pilate had was the power that God gave Pilate. And he wanted to make sure that Pilate understood something. You don't have power over me. You don't have authority enough to crucify me. As a matter of fact, I'm not dying until that appointed time has come for me and the business that my father sent me here to accomplish is finished. I'm not going anywhere. But even if you do have some power, it's only because my father gave it to you. That's how in control Jesus was. He was in the center of God's perfect will and nobody had power over him. Jesus' death was a providential act, a divine providential act. It wasn't the result of suffering that was caused by the actions of sinful men. Sinful men didn't kill Jesus. They were used to kill Jesus. The truth is Jesus got himself killed. Why? Because it's the only way. Remember, God the Father's will was, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And Jesus, God the Son, says, you know what? I'm in agreement with your will, and I am willing to be the sacrifice in order for them to be saved. It was an act of his will. It was an agreement with the will of the Father. And as Jesus suffered and died, it was part of of God's plan all alone. Nobody killed Jesus. How do I know that? Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 verse 18, No man takes my life, but I lay it down freely of myself, and if I choose to do that, I've also got the power to raise it back up again. I mean, that's the kind of God we serve. We don't serve some religious spooky, goofy, nonsensical God that that is not... We have a God who is in perfect control. We have a God that is sovereign. We have a God that, that sits on the throne. We have a God that is beautiful, who is wonderful, who is powerful, who is all-knowing, who, who is omniscient who is omnipresent, he's eternal, he's he that is and was and is to come, he is he that dies and is now alive and will live forevermore. This is the God that we serve. There is no other God besides him. Every other God is an idol, either created with the hands of man or in the minds of men. Now here's the truth. None of us probably would bow down and and worship a graven image. But we would most definitely create a God in our mind in order to suit ourselves. We do it all the time. We don't even have to read the Bible or even follow the teachings of Jesus in order for us to feel like that, you know what? My soul is good. Me and God are like this. I prayed a prayer. I came to the altar. I actually cried. I got baptized. 
There's no fruit in my life. I don't have a desire to read the Bible. I don't pray. I don't, you know, to ask somebody to share their faith with somebody. I don't, I'm not inviting anybody to church on Easter. But the Bible plainly says, you know what? If you desire to come after me, let a man deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. How many of you are denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him? Listen, the faith you know is the faith you show. And listen, faith in the heart will lead to actions in the world. That's why faith without works is You can't say no, Lord, and mean it at the same time. If he's Lord, you don't even have an option. Those of you that are married ought to know this. Your opinion is irrelevant if Jesus is Lord. But yet we read the Bible as if God is speaking that these are some options for you. If you can work them into your life after you do all that you want to do, I'm, I'm preaching too hard for you. I need to stop this. Somebody probably get mad at me. But he said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. Go to this next one. This, this is another reason why that I know. Go ahead and go to the next slide, sorry. This is another reason how I know that Jesus' death was divine providential act. Now look at this. There's over 60 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. 25 of them deal with the events surrounding the betrayal, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. These prophecies were written by different people over a period of 500 years. Now, I'm not talking about all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. I'm just talking about what it says here in D, that is, those that actually took place within a 24-hour period of time. You know, scientific data now will help us calculate the probability of these prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man, but, but not 60 of them. You know what the statistical probability of just eight of these prophecies actually coming to pass in the life of one person? One and over 100 trillion. In other words, it's mathematically impossible for that to happen in the life of one person. Yet if you read the Bible, if you research history, if you will study enough, you'll find out, you know what, this wasn't, God's in control. He's got a plan. And I don't care what you're going through this morning and what you're dealing with. Listen, if you've got a pulse, God's got a plan. And no matter how far you've fallen, and no matter how dark it is around you, and no matter how much you're struggling, you know what? God can bring you out. Why? Because He is in control. Sometimes He just leaves us hanging just to let us know. You put your trust in something else other than me way too much. So therefore, I'm going to let you trust in the very thing 
that you feel like you need to trust in to show you that you can't trust that anymore. And then when we trust in that thing and then it ends up being disappointing to us, you know what we do? We get mad at God. Why? Because we're immature. Now, I'm not saying that you walk around going, you know what, I'm so glad that you know, I'm being you know, persecuted and, and tormented and afflicted and people are mean. I'm not saying that. But it's very easy to identify idols in, my, in our lives. An idol is anything that you run to first besides Jesus. Anything that you find value in more than Jesus. Money can become a very, very, very easy idol. And listen, I believe that we ought to work. You know, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat, right? But sometimes we work so much we don't have time for God because we love material things so much that we have to work ourselves to death in order to pay for it. Or we want to be a part of a certain social status. Or we want to be looked at as something more than what we, what we really are. We want to keep up with the Joneses and we don't even like the Joneses. Why? Because being associated with a certain group of people gives us value. It gives us status. And the reason we look for something other than God in order to feel valued and to have a sense of identity is simply because we're idol worshipers. Again, we're not bowing down and worshiping a golden image, but what we're doing is this. We feel like in our minds that we need to do this in order to be somebody. And it starts at a very young age. So Jesus' life, his, his, his death, it wasn't an accident. Here's what the Bible says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. It says, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth this son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those that were under the law. Jesus' life was not an accident. His, his, life, his death was not the result of random chance. If it were, then he could have never said in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And so, it wasn't an accident. Now, now, what does that have to do and say about us? The same is true for you and I. Listen, you are not going to die to the will of cancer. You're not going to die to the will of a terminal disease or some tragic car accident. You are going to die at the appointed time in which you are supposed to die because Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed once for a man to what? And then comes the judgment. Now, I've had people tell me all the time, Don, why you got to go over in these foreign countries? You know what? You're going to get killed over there. You know what I say to them? Well, I kind of figured it like this. I don't really have any particular place that, 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 that I plan on dying. But if I'm going to die, let me die directly in the center of God's will. Because I've done my will before. I've lived life my way before. 
If I die on the mission field, I can promise you this much. I'm going to die in the very place where God wants me to die because when my appointed time comes, there's nothing I can do to stop it. Only thing I can do is be ready when it comes. But I tell people all the time, listen, if you want to get back home, sit in my lap because I ain't going nowhere until I'm done with what God's called me to do. Why? Because I want to be like Jesus. I want to be, I want the most important thing in my life is to do my Father's will and to finish it. I have no interest in just preaching to people. All the glamour of that stuff is gone. Have no interest in just trying to travel the world for the sake of traveling the world and, and people saying, oh, wow, you go here and you go there. The, the glamour of that is gone. But at this point, I'm trying to look at the eternal, from an eternal perspective and hope that everything that I've given my life to up to this point, that, that hopefully there's at least 1% of what I've given my life to that will last when it's judged and I stand before him. Because here's the truth. If we really believed Romans 14, 12, where it says, Every man shall give account of himself to God. On the day of judgment, we would totally live our lives from a different perspective. If you only had 24 hours to live, what would you have to change in order to make sure you're right? And if you need to change some stuff to make sure that things are right between you and God, don't walk out of this building this morning having not done that because you know what? You don't know if you've got 24 hours yet. And that's not a scare tactic. That's a reality. Because the Bible says wherever a tree falls, there it lays. Here's the third thing. Jesus died in his Father's hands. Notice what he says here in verse 46. Father, into your hands... What an incredible statement that he's making here. Again, th this is a, a direct choice and voluntary action while being nailed to the cross. He's not dying. He's finishing. And when he says it's finished, he says, the very next thing he says is, into your hands. Father, into your hands. He's going into his Father's hands. When you leave this earth, are you going to go into your Father's hands? I mean, the power of hands. Over and over and over and over, Jesus says repeatedly that he's being delivered into the hands of man. He's being delivered into the hands of men. You know, he's being, he's being delivered into the hands of wicked men, one verse says. Another verse says that he was being hand, uh, placed into the hands of, of, of wicked, evil sinners. Matthew 26, 45, Behold, the hour comes and is at hand, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of man. Into the hands of sinners. Acts 2, 23, Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God and was taken by Wicked hands to be crucified and put to death. 
Listen, wicked hands slapped him. Wicked hands struck him. Wicked hands formed the crown of thorns, and wicked hands put it on his head. Wicked hands tortured him with a cat of nine tails. Wicked hands pulled the beard out from his face. Wicked hands drove the nails through his hands and his feet. But there comes a time when the hands of men can do nothing more and the hands of God has the final word. And so what's happening here, God, who has orchestrated this plan in which the Son is in agreement with, is now after suffering from the hands of men who was crucified and put to death with wicked hands, is now committing himself into his Father's hands. Jesus died in his Father's hands. Isn't that beautiful? When you know you're going into your Father's hands, death doesn't seem to be such a bad thing. You know what? There's many of you that are here this morning. You're scared of dying. You're terrified of dying. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die to get there. But you know what? You're not getting off the planet of life. Why? It's appointed once for a minute. We're all going, listen, the only thing that you can do is to make sure that when your time comes that you go into the hands of God. That's what Jesus did. Listen to this. After Jesus committed his spirit into the hands of his father, if you read Isaiah 53 verse 11, he says, And he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, For the joy set before him he endured the cross. Jesus was able to say, he was able to say that even though there was a lot of pain and suffering in the cross, the reality of it is this, I can see past the pain and I can see myself in the hands of my Father because that day's coming soon. If they would, I want you to come to music. Now, even though we've discussed all of this, I would be doing, a God, uh, doing God an injustice if, if I failed to mention this part. Listen to this. If your spirit does not go into the hands of God for safekeeping, just hang with me, we're wrapping it up, it will go into the hands of God for judgment. If your, hand, if your spirit does not go into the hands of God for safekeeping, it will go into the hands of God for judgment. And the same hands that speak of hope and comfort also speak of terror and punishment. That's why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 10, verse 31, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the what? The hands of a living God. If, if, if your spirit doesn't go into the hands of God for safekeeping, it will go into the hands of God for judgment, and it is a fearful thing. Because here's the truth. The same hands... 
that are still outstretched to you today that are inviting you to come and receive mercy and forgiveness will be the same hands that Jesus spoke about where he says, cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Either those hands will welcome you into heaven or those hands will cast you into the lake of fire with burns with brimstone forever and forever. Now, I know that's not popular. And I know that that's not politically correct. And I know that's not seeker sensitive. But it's still true. And I don't want you to go there. But if I fail to talk about that particular part of being in the hands of God, you know what? I have preached to you half of the truth. And to tell half the truth is to tell a complete lie. And I cannot look at you in the eye this morning and tell you a lie. But the Father's hands are at this moment reaching out to you. Offering mercy, forgiveness, and a promise. But one day, those hands won't be stretched out offering mercy. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that he himself will cast whose ever name was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's the same God's hands that Jesus said into your hands I commit my spirit whatever you do whatever you do make sure that when it comes your time to pass from here to there that you go into the hands of God for safekeeping Because when that happens, it'll be too late. I close with this last thing. When Jesus was put on trial before Pilate in John chapter 19, the real issue when Jesus was standing before him, the real issue was not whether Jesus was innocent or guilty. It it wasn't really whether he deserved to live or die. The real issue for the entire trial was the issue of loyalty. Now listen to me. Pilate actually wanted to release Jesus to go free. He had good intentions, right? He actually said, I don't have any fault. I find no fault in this man. He wanted to let Jesus go free. That was his intention. But all of a sudden, the Jews cried out and they said, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. And when Pilate heard them saying this, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat, and then he delivered him to be crucified. So what the Jews were really asking Pilate is this. 
Whose friend are you? Are you Caesar's friend or are you Jesus's friend? That was what was on trial here. His friendship, his loyalty. But as soon as Pilate heard what the Jews were saying, he immediately decided who he was going to stand with. And you know what? When the rubber met the road, good intentions were not good enough. The Bible says they delivered him to be crucified. They were basically saying to Pilate, you've got to decide who you're going to be loyal to. So which is it, Jesus or Caesar? In reality, it looked like Jesus was on trial by Pilate. But the truth is, it was Pilate that was being on trial for Jesus. And the same question that Pilate was faced with, you and I are faced with today. Let me ask you the same question. Whose friend are you? Who are you loyal to? Again, Pilate, he had good intentions. He wanted to let Jesus go. But he chose to stand with Caesar, and as a result of his decision, his eternal destiny was secured. You see, it's really and truly when you, narrow, when you, when you boil it down to one thing, it is a true test of loyalty. Who are you loyal to? You can be loyal to a lot of things. And the cold hard truth is this. Pilate's decision teaches us where you choose to place your loyalty will determine where you spend eternity. And just like Pilate, each of us must choose. And let me say this. Loyalty is much more than mental acknowledgement that you stand with Jesus. Loyalty is more than good intentions. But with Pilate, he had good intentions, but his good intentions were not enough. Loyalty requires that you make a decision and then give a response. You see, Pilate not only had to choose, he had to stand in opposition to everybody that was there. And he knew if he chose Jesus, it was going to end up costing him big time, even his life. But you know what? He loved his life more than he loved Jesus. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that in the last days, people shall be lovers of themselves. The truth is this. Most of us love ourselves more than we love Jesus. Right? But today, on this Resurrection Sunday, I believe God's saying, Whose friend are you?
Who do you love? Where are your loyalties? And don't just assume that everything's good because loyalty is proven when your intentions are turned into actions. That's why Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Loyalty is affectionate allegiance. And so based on your actions, not your intentions, based on what you show, not what you know, based on the fruit and not the image, whose friend are you? Stand with me. Whose friend are you? Who are you loyal to? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died in his Father's presence. Jesus died within the providence, his Father's providence. Jesus died in his Father's hands. Let me ask you, when you die, whose hands will you go into? Will you go into the Father's hands for safekeeping or will you go into the Father's hands for judgment? And if you don't know, I can't think of a better way or a better day for you to know because you can know before you walk out these doors. Remember the thief, he prayed, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, when you're ready and you're serious about getting down to business with God, it doesn't take big words and fancy prayers. The thief didn't ask to be honored, he asked to be remembered. But it's an honor to be remembered by Jesus with your head bowed and your eyes closed, let's pray. Father, I ask you today, I've shared to the best of my ability. I'm not the Holy Spirit, nor do I know the heart of any man, not even my own. I just ask you, Lord, that if there's somebody here that does not know you, that, Lord, that you would reveal that to them, that they would recognize it, they would Turn their good intentions into actions and come to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, on the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to raise up your hand. You can put it back down because that doesn't save you. It just lets me know that you're here. It also lets me know that God's working with you. If you don't know Jesus and if you don't have 100% assurance that things are right between you and God and you don't know where you would go, and today you want to know, on the count of three, just raise your hand straight up and straight back down. One, two, three. Shoot your hand up and say, that's me. Amen. Somebody else. Amen. See you. The rest of you, 
Don't be like Pilate. Don't just assume that your good intentions are good enough. And I'm not saying question your salvation. I'm just saying examine your loyalty. Loyalty is affection and allegiance. Are you more loyal to yourself, to your job, to your recreation, to material things? Then you are Jesus. Then let me tell you something. You need to make sure you get that worked out. They're going to sing and they're going to play. You need to do business with God. If you need personal prayer, if you want to give your life to Jesus, this altar is open to you. And we want to invite you to come now and Jesus.